Richard Thompson Ford is the George E. Osborne Professor of Law at Stanford Law School. His scholarship combines social criticism and legal analysis. He's written for the Washington Post, San Francisco Chronicle, and the Christian Science Monitor. He's a regular contributor for Slate and has appeared on The Rachel Maddow Show, The Colbert Report, and other programs. His most recent book is Dress Codes, How the Laws of Fashion Made History. His books The Race Card and Rights Gone Wrong, How Law Corrupts the Struggle for Equality have been selected by the New York Times as notable books of the year. On Being a Black Lawyer has called him one of the most influential black lawyers in the nation. Professor Richard Thompson Ford, welcome to The Creative Process. Thanks for having me. Your most recently published book is Dress Codes. But first, just tell us what started your journey to becoming a lawyer and why you chose to focus on civil rights and anti-discrimination law. Well, I started my work in law with housing. And I did some work for the city of Cambridge, Massachusetts, about rent control and affordable housing. And as I started that work, what I came to realize was that the issues of housing affordability were intimately connected to questions of race, race discrimination, racial segregation, and the history of race relations in the United States. The, the way cities developed in the United States was inextricably intertwined with race. So that led me naturally to start to think about civil rights issues, both in the area of constitutional law and in the area of what we lawyers call statutory law, meaning legislation passed by, for instance, Congress, like the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So over the arc of my career, I've been interested in all of these questions. And you've also been critical about the extent to which expansion of civil rights laws can really truly solve all of social ills. Yes, that's true. And I want to be clear that the civil rights legislation, for instance, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, it's been enormously important. And so in no sense do I want to suggest that that legislation is unnecessary. It's just that it's insufficient. So in the area of housing, again, for instance, that's one of the areas of civil rights law where laws, frankly, have been the least successful. The United States continues to have dramatically racially segregated cities. And in any major metropolitan area, people can identify, for instance, the African-American neighborhood in many communities, the Latino neighborhood. So the idea that these laws would lead to equal opportunities for housing, that hasn't come about. And one of the things that I've tried to do in my work is demonstrate the way that laws that don't seem to be directly related to social equality, to equality of opportunity, to racial justice, in fact are, and that it's only through also reforming these kind of systemic and institutionalized forms of discrimination that we could truly achieve an egalitarian society. So what I've really wanted to argue against is the idea that civil rights are you know, a kind of a magic bullet and that, that those kinds of laws alone would be sufficient to achieve. And of course, you're in San Francisco and you've also been on the housing commission there. So you really know it inside out. You know, what are some of those other tools that you're speaking of that can work hand in hand with civil rights that have been most effective that you've seen? Well, one question involves land use policies like zoning. So a significant impediment to achieving housing equality is the use of local land use policies in order to prevent, for instance, low-income housing, multifamily housing from being built in certain areas. And this is a source not only of restriction of housing opportunities in particular areas, but it also affects the way public resources are distributed because a lot of public resources are tied to local residents. In the United States, if let's say a wealthy suburb has a strong tax base, and keeps most of the revenue raised through property taxes for itself, the fact that low-income people can't move into that jurisdiction means that that public revenue is restricted to wealthier people. And that's a big problem for achieving sound public policy and social equity. So that's just one example. If you look at the employment market, most jobs are filled through word of mouth and informal social networks. So if you have segregated neighborhoods, segregated public schools, those are the places people meet each other, 
when those jobs are filled, they're filled through those racially segregated social networks. No one's discriminating in the sense of deliberately excluding people of color. Um, you don't need to have a bad actor with racist motivation. But the fact that our society is organized in the way it is means that many jobs simply aren't available to people from different backgrounds. And it's a lot of work for someone to try to overcome that at the hiring stage. It's too late in one sense at the hiring stage. So in order to really achieve equality of opportunity in the employment market, you need reform of these other areas of society. Yes. And then when different communities are moving up the social ladder, then gentrification comes in and it creates all those problems. Yes. And that's yet another set of problems. Gentrification can mean that people, long-term residents of a community are priced out of their community. And again, it leads to a housing affordability problem. Not all forms of gentrification are bad, but it is a housing dynamic that like many, work to the detriment of the most vulnerable in our society. David Banks was mentioning to me, we're discussing gentrification issues and that when some young people, you know, under the age of 10, they see trees starting to be planted in their community and they, they get a PTSD, they think they might have to move. Right. And I've seen that phenomenon. It's really quite tragic because on the one hand, we want to improve these lower income communities that having trees planted is something that's important for psychological health. And yet at the same time, when people associate any kind of improvement with displacement, they're not wrong. We, given the history of displacement in American cities, they're not wrong to suspect that the next step will be, you know, will be pushed out. And just to give us a little bit of a background on your family, as I understand, they grew up in segregated Souths and they instilled some of your passion for these issues. Yes. I mean, both of my parents grew up in the Jim Crow South. My mother, I was just talking to her a couple of days ago about the way that when they went to the movies, they had to sit in the colored section, which were the seats furthest away from the screen or on particular days. They could only go on certain days. They knew when the white schools were getting new textbooks because they got the old ones that were handed down. So they experienced in race relations at their worst. And of course, they also experienced the great improvements of the civil rights era. So the opening up of opportunities and my family was fortunate to be in a position to really be able to take advantage of those improved opportunities and therefore improve our own situation. And also you've been, I don't know, critical, but perhaps you could share your perspective on affirmative action. Well, I think affirmative action is a perfectly sensible policy. You know, it's interesting that affirmative action began under the Nixon administration. So not a liberal, not a progressive, as one of a number of tools designed to reverse and remedy longstanding patterns of discrimination. It's a policy that makes perfect sense. My criticism has to do with some of the rationale and in particular, the way that the Supreme Court in uh, the Bakke decision restricted the acceptable, the constitutionally acceptable rationales for affirmative action to the diversity rationale in the context of higher education. There are different things to be said about employment. The diversity rationale is fine as one rationale, but I don't think it's the only rationale that's reasonable for affirmative action and what the Bakke decision and subsequent affirmative action decisions have done is they've made it difficult for universities to talk about the history of racial subordination. Because if a university were to say, we have an affirmative action policy in order to help remedy the longstanding effects of racial discrimination, that rationale is unconstitutional. And so that's evidence that their affirmative action program is not justified, according to the Supreme Court. And so in effect, what that decision has done is it's been a gag order on university administrations from talking about the history of racism and racial discrimination and exclusion in this country. Instead, they can only talk about diversity as if the reason universities aren't diverse is somehow mysterious, is something that we're not sure why we don't have a diverse student body in the absence of affirmative action policies. When in fact, everyone knows perfectly well and that 
needs to be talked about. And that is a good reason to have affirmative action policies. So I think that the Supreme Court's jurisprudence around affirmative action has significantly distorted the national conversation about race relations. That now when we talk about racial equity, when in the 1970s, for instance, we might have talked about integration, we might have talked about black power in some contexts, we might have talked about the a history of subordination. Today, we talk about diversity. And diversity is a sanitized way to talk about race relations. And it's one that gives people a distorted view of our nation's history. And I think in that sense, it's been quite destructive. It is important to have diversity and it's important to have balance and quotas, but not just for the sake of seeming. So people have discussed with us also, I believe the faculty at Stanford where you teach are very diverse, but other universities, it's less so the student body may be, but who has tenure and who they're hiring is significantly underrepresented among minorities. That's true. And, you know, in elite universities like Stanford, the faculty is frankly, nowhere near as diverse as it should be. It's nowhere near as diverse as one would expect looking at the population. We too suffer from the legacy of race discrimination in our country. Now, elite universities have made efforts to diversify their faculties, which include outreach, which include thinking about racial representation. And this is the main issue I'd like to raise with respect to affirmative action is that in order to correct for generations of racial disadvantage, one has to think about race. One has to look for the ways in which race discrimination are continuing to affect our society today. If instead you're quote unquote colorblind, as if there were no such history, the systemic forces that I was describing earlier are going to ensure that we never advance that we never improve the racial situation. We're kind of locked in place. So one of the things that I wanted to uh, advance most forcefully is that the legacy of race discrimination will not go away on its own simply because people may have somewhat better racial attitudes, that structural and institutional patterns will continue to reinforce that old patterns of segregation unless we do something, well, affirmative, in order to remedy those paths. I want to go into the issue of policing and how we can solve that. Someone told me that in Michigan and Target practice, they use African-American faces for target practice. Yes. Well, there are a lot of issues to be discussed with policing. That's a particularly stark example that you've just given. And, you know, I mean, anyone, for instance, who grew up in the 1980s, as I did, will remember a lot in the media that regularly depicted African-Americans as thugs, as criminals. There was a television show called Cops. You might remember it almost every week. It was a kind of reality TV show, but every week they picked some group of African-American gang members or criminals as the focus. And so it reinforced this idea that most African-Americans are criminals. And I think a lot of high crime areas are heavily minority areas because of poverty. And because of that history of racial subordination and segregation that I've been describing, that many African-Americans are shunted into the most undesirable neighborhoods. But without understanding that history, one then gets the idea, the stereotype that African-Americans are, you know, predisposed toward crime or something along those lines. And something like this target is particularly offensive and horrific example of that kind of mentality. There are a lot of other reforms that would be useful in improving American policing. You know, certainly there's, there's biased attitudes on the part of some police officers. But again, I think the structural problems are even greater with respect to this. There's the problem of racial segregation in high crime neighborhoods, which means that when police are using aggressive tactics in the neighborhoods with the highest levels of crime, the targets are disproportionately people of color. There's also the fact that in the United States, it's not true in most other countries, policing is decentralized. It's a local matter. And so there's a wide range of training and a wide range of different types of protocols. Some police departments, the officers are quite well trained. They have protocols in place in order to try to prevent or reduce racial bias. Policing is well thought out. 
In others, police are very poorly trained. Some local police departments take the rejects from the better cities and they are engaged in a type of policing that really no one can defend. Like things like revenue-based policing, where a lot of the policing is being done just in order to raise fine revenue. And so people are being caught up in law enforcement who really did very little, if anything, wrong. You know, we're talking about things like failure to use a turn signal when you change lanes. We've all done this. Do you deserve to be hauled into jail for that? I don't think so, but some police departments do this. So these kinds of patterns are leading to uh, an increased number of unnecessary encounters with police and an increased likelihood of police violence. Last thing I'd say is the proliferation of guns in American society just makes policing a more violent and dangerous and danger-prone activity than it is in other places. Some statistics, for instance, show that American police are 40 times more likely to be killed in the line of duty than police in other countries like Germany or Great Britain. So as a consequence, of course, they're more trigger-happy themselves. Some of this then is it's not justified, but it's understandable. And these are problems in our society that could be confronted. And in one sense, the cause, these kinds of problems, maybe more important than individual racism on the part of individual police officers. I'm not saying that's not a problem, but what I am saying is that given these structural features, we would continue to have racial inequities in policing even if you could imagine you wave a magic wand and none of the police officers were racially biased at all. I don't know enough about it, but people have recounted to me stories of when they remember a different relationships that communities had with police officers, where they knew each other by name. It was, it was part of the community. They're protecting and, and obviously terrible injustices did take place, most definitely underreported. But there was this sense of they're part of the community. People have told me, particularly a number of people of color, that their parent might have a talk with you after five or six, you know, just to say this is the way it is and you have to be prepared for being pulled over. Oh, well, that latter part is certainly true that I think most African-Americans have this conversation with their children, particularly their sons, that if you have an encounter with a police officer, you need to make very certain that that police officer knows you're not a threat. You know, you need to comply. Even if the police officer is wrong, you sort out the legalities later. But, uh, you know, arguing with the police officer is a very dangerous thing uh, for someone who's an African-American in our society. I do think that they, you know, in today's environment, most Black people have that painful conversation with their kids. So how do we heal and how do we bring about that sense of trust? You spoke about improving training and what are some other ways? Well, I won't claim to be an expert on policing reform, but one of the structural changes that I'm describing would be quite important. Training. Just the mere fact that the police officer is well-trained could prevent a lot of the worst tragedies. You see examples where the police officer says at any rate that they pulled their firearm, but they thought it was a taser. If that's possible, then that's just terrible training. Now, maybe the officer's lying and trying to cover their actions later. But some of these incidents do seem to be the result of accidents or people acting in a mode of panic that better training could fix. Getting rid of things like revenue policing that I was describing so that the encounters between police and civilians are necessary and not their and the police departments are well enough funded that they don't need to engage in that. That's important. A lot of the reforms that were proposed after the height of the Black Lives Matter movement that, that sometimes went under the somewhat misleading name of defunding the police. It, it, I don't think that's the, quite the right way to think about it. But there were reforms that police officers would embrace too in many instances, like, for instance, um, not calling in the police for encounters where uh, armed response isn't necessary. We can find ways to, for instance, in context where we're dealing with people who are mentally ill, where we're dealing with disputes that uh, haven't turned violent and aren't dangerous, to bring in social workers, to bring in psychologists, to bring in other types of uh, professionals to deal with the situation without escalating it. And, you know, uh, not bringing in the police for... Um, petty offenses that perhaps shouldn't be criminal anyway, things like selling loose cigarettes or 
you know, other kinds of minor offenses where a police encounter can turn violent and even deadly. These are all things that could be handled in better ways. So all of those reforms would be necessary and, and quite helpful. On top of that, uh, you know, certainly anti-bias training. There are people who are doing great works in trying to pl train police officers out of subconscious or implicit biases. That's helpful as well. We need a comprehensive approach with a lot of different reforms in order to really tackle this problem. There's no one thing or one or two things that would be sufficient. And so segueing into address codes, how the laws of fashion made history, you're talking a lot about profiling there or how we're judged by our carriers and how you can get beyond that to be valued for yourself. One of the stories in dress codes, you wrote about the story of a slave, Bacchus. One of the things that was fascinating in my research for dress codes was the way that African American slaves used clothing and valued clothing in a fairly complicated way. So these were societies where clothing really signified social status in a very profound sense. And everyone was aware of a sort of social hierarchy that could be identified on site by the type of clothing people wore. There was a society in which display was important. And clothing also turned out to be a way that one, masters rewarded their slaves with fine clothing in some senses or with the privilege of wearing nicer clothing. Free African-Americans wore refined clothing as a symbol of their social status. And some of these things became quite contested in the society. A lot of whites, for instance, really resented well-dressed African-Americans. African-Americans also used high-status European clothing, but tweaked it in a variety of ways. So that it wasn't just that they were trying to emulate their white counterparts in society, but they were using that clothing, but adding their own twists and flourishes that came from African culture um, in or as a mode of self, expression of self-worth and dignity in the same way that refined clothing has always had that characteristic. So Bacchus, who you're mentioning, was an escaped slave. And when he escaped, he took lots of fine clothing with him. And there was a list when the authorities were trying to track him down and his master was trying to track him down of the clothing that he had taken so that they could try to identify him. And it, it was quite a long and elaborate list of very refined clothing, shoes with silver buckles and fine coats and things like this. And one's first reaction is, why is he taking all this clothing with him? Is he crazy? Do you think he'd want to travel light? But I think two things were going on. You know, one is that clothing was a symbol of self-worth and dignity. It mattered to him. It was significant to him. And if you think about your own life, there are certain things that are important to you and that even if you were on the run, you would probably try to take with you that are important to your sense of self. And I think clothing has that character for a lot of people. Now, don't forget that in this period of time, clothing was quite rare. So it's not as if he had, you know, a huge closet full of fast fashion. These, this, these were valuable garments. So he could also trade them, for instance, on the road, and he could use them for disguise. And one of the descriptions of Bacchus was that he was very clever and he would use this clothing to disguise himself in various ways and pass himself off as a preacher or in a variety of ways. So he may have thought very carefully about the kind of clothing that he could use in order to blend in in certain environments as he made his escape. This past spring, I was asked to write a about 15 page paper, some aspect of 18th, 19th century history that I found really fascinating. I decided to write on the masculine renunciation. Basically, I was curious about how did men's fashion go from being so elaborate and exuberant to being bland and boring and simple. One of the first books I read for this paper was Dress Codes, How the Laws of Fashion Made History by Richard Thompson Ford. And it essentially answered my question, but I was still determined to write this paper. So although it was a good source, I did my best to come up with my own ideas and make my own paper and assumptions about what had happened during this time. And we do touch on the masculine renunciation a little bit in the podcast, but not enough for it to be completely understood. So to my understanding, the masculine renunciation was a time in primarily English history. Back when England and France were 
very much against each other. And England wanted to be distinguishable from France. And French styles were meant to symbolize power and wealth. So England decided to have their styles represent strength and masculinity, which meant stepping away from these like bright colors and embroidery and lace and all of these extra details to simplicity, natural, neutral colors. And this took effect in many aspects, especially with the Tartan Act in Scotland, where the kilt was essentially banned. It was seen as unmasculine and it went against English ideology and was seen as a treasonous for a good period of time. And although I primarily use this book for the masculine reconciliation, this book really helped me understand not just like fashion throughout history, but also how fashion impacts us today and how it's not simply a frivolous curiosity or hobby. It's a really important aspect of our identity and should be taken seriously. And now back to the podcast. I had a very particular interest in dress codes. I think one of my favorite pieces of studying fashion is seeing how little symbols can be big signs for what you're a part of and cultures you're with. For example, I think the most recent example is like the color green. A lot of people are wearing green now to show support for bringing back Roe versus Wade and mm. support for abortion in the United States. And I've seen a lot of that, especially around the 4th of July. So were there any trends or styles like that throughout your research that you've noticed that you thought were particularly interesting? There were quite a few. There were, sometimes these symbols were symbols that were chosen by the group. Sometimes there were symbols that were imposed. So I'll give you two examples. The history of how they developed can be quite interesting. In Scotland, there was something called the Tartan Act that was passed after a Scottish rebellion was subdued and that outlawed various forms of what were described as Highland dress, which included tartans and what we now think of as kilts and various other things. Now, what was interesting about this was that for much of the population of Scotland at that time, they never wore this type of clothing. There were a small number of people who did. In addition, its relationship to sort of ancient Scottish culture was quite questionable. But by passing this Tartan Act, what the British government wound up doing was turning them into symbols of Scottish nationalism. So if people didn't wear them before, they did want to afterwards. And so the Tartan Act became, you know, a source of a great deal of controversy. Eventually it was repealed. And now all of those symbols, um, some of which were related to Scottish traditions and some of which frankly weren't, there's evidence that they were, came from somewhere else, became symbols of Scottish nationalism. So there's one example, of course, they are still to this day. Another example that really stuck out, and this was something that rather than the symbol being forbidden, it was imposed, was Jewish women in Renaissance era Italy in certain cities were required by law to wear earrings. So the earring became a symbol of Judaism. Now, how that happened was kind of unusual. It turned out that in certain parts of Italy, earrings were worn by women of all religions. In other parts of Italy, particularly northern Italy, earrings were rarely worn by any women. And when Jewish women migrated north, sometimes they brought the earrings with them from the south so that they started to become associated with Judaism. This collided with a religious symbolism in which vanities, including jewelry and the like, were associated with sin and vice and um, seductiveness. And so putting those two together was a way to suggest that Jewish women were sinful. They were seductresses. They were people that Gentile men needed to look out for and they needed to be warned about. And so the women needed to wear these earrings so that good Christian men would be aware that they were Jewish. Um, but at the same time, it was also not so subtly suggesting that Judaism was a corrupt faith and would corrupt the society through its vanities and through its luxury. So those are two examples of evolution of this type of symbolism through something quite specific. That's really interesting. That kind of takes me to how, to my understanding, a lot of clothing trends, especially today in modern history, are taken from other cultures and other identities. And 
with your emphasis on cultural identity and racial identity, especially the second half of dress codes, I was wondering what are your views on taking these like cultural dress identities and <laughs> trends into like white fashions? Yes, it's really, it's, it, I find this to be a quite vexed question because on the one hand, when people complain of cultural appropriation, I think they mean a lot of different things. Sometimes they mean you have adopted something that is profound and important to our culture in a way that's superficial or that's disrespectful. So, you know, this is kind of the example of someone who's going to wear a Native American headdress, you, you know, at a football game or something along these lines. And they'd simply say, you know, this is an important symbol to us and it's not acceptable for you to wear it in this kind of disrespectful fashion. Another thing that happens is um, it's really about exclusion from a particular field. So when, for instance, white women wear dreadlocks or braids and the complaints made that that's uh, cultural appropriation, Often the rest of the complaint is, you know, when we wear it, we're considered to be tacky or ghetto, or we can't get jobs as fashion models, but then you, you know, when you want to adopt it, you put it on a group of white women. And so a lot of that's about exclusion as much as it is about the borrowing. But then there's the kind of borrowing that is, as you suggest, it has been a regular part of the evolution of certainly Western fashion uh, since the Renaissance where people borrow some element from some other group, whether it's another culture, it's another profession, it's another gender, um, and adopt it in kind of take it out of context as a way to create something new. Because the way one creates something new that has significance in fashion is by referring to something that's old. That's how you get it to have significance. It needs to be familiar enough that it evokes something can't be completely new because if it was, no one would be able to get a beat on what it's, what it means, but also taken out of context. And so that kind of cultural appropriation, I can't criticize. I think that is not only healthy, but it's necessary for fashion to have its evocative power. And, you know, the example of gender is the most obvious one where for centuries, daring and fashion forward women adopted aspects of masculine attire and they did so in order to send a particular kind of statement which was necessarily dependent on its original meaning for masculine attire but this has also been done in the context of for instance religious garb where some one element of religious garb is adopted into a secular costume and of course it's natural and indeed it's also been done of four centuries with different cultures different geographic locations, everything from high-heeled shoes that were adopted by Westerners from Persian military equestrians or the cummerbund, which is the formal sash that one wears with the dinner suit that was adopted from India. So those kind of appropriations, if they're done with respect and not with contempt, yeah, I think those are fine. Those are okay. Yes, exactly. I think artists always do it. And in music and in hip hop and in many traditions, there's this, whether it's direct sampling or it's just a sign of, as you say, of respect and that you honor it. And I think that it's that degree, if it's an outright copy or it seems like plagiarism, and yet it's on the completely, you know, transplanted <laughs> to a different rate, yeah. that it gets too much. Yes, yeah, so particularly there because the racism and the exclusion comes in where you know what I mean? That's the complaint, for instance, about Elvis Presley. Like Elvis Presley lifts the blues pretty much verbatim. And he is famous because he's white. You know, people wouldn't accept an African-American artist playing this music, but they'll take a white person. And that's offensive. You know, it's not necessarily Elvis's fault, but it certainly is a commentary on our society that this type of music, which originated with the African-American community, could only be acceptable when a white person performed it in a mainstream way. And so this person gets rich more or less on the labor of other people. 
And I wonder if there's plagiarism or citations, a, a certain fair use period, like <laughs> Shakespeare has been, we just had a conversation with the classic <laughs> theater of Harlem. You know, after a certain period, Shakespeare belongs to everyone. And it's very revealing, actually, the new perspective. It becomes fresh. Oh, yeah, I think that's right. In intellectual property law, creations go into the public domain at some point. And you might say something similar even about the creations of various cultural groups. And I do think that a lot of the dynamism in our society has to do with cultural fusions. I mean, if you look at anything from jazz to the blues to hip hop, these are cultural fusions. They originate with one community, but they are the result of borrowing from of traditions in European and Western music, traditions in African music, traditions from Latin America, all of these things combine to become a new art form. So to say that that kind of borrowing is unacceptable would repudiate most of the great creative efforts in history. Yes. And you kind of apologize for it because fashion is sometimes seen as frivolous, but we see as you illustrate the many ways it can be used as a protest. It can be historically, you mentioned, you know, women wearing trousers or others just asserting their dignity as being threatening to the social order. So please expand upon that. Oh, yes, absolutely. I think one of the things I wanted to push back against most in writing this book is the idea that fashion is trivial or superficial. And frankly, I think that idea is a consequence of the great masculine renunciation, uh, which we've already mentioned briefly, the idea that um, men aren't fashionable. That started in a particular historical period, not all that long ago, the mid 1700s, and was part of a change in civic ideals in which I, sobriety, rationality, industriousness were valued. And so what was symbolized there was, um, we don't care about superficial things, but of course the men did care just as much about the superficial, they weren't superficial, but about fashion as they ever did. They just had a new type of fashion, which symbolized this new idea. Fashion then was considered to be the domain of women. And because it was the domain of women, it was then described as trivial and superficial as a misogynistic society described most things that were associated with women. In fact, as you suggest, fashion has always been a powerful mode of self-expression and of political and social expression. And if you really think about it, it shouldn't be surprising. We present ourselves and our bodies every day in public. And the way we do that is profoundly important. It's the way we establish a sense of self in a social domain and clothing is the most direct way that's accomplished. And so of course it has political significance. And that's why it's always been regulated. Um, something that's trivial and superficial doesn't inspire a lot of rules and laws. But in fact, in our society up to the present day, there are lots of rules and laws around what people can wear. So those statements that are made can have profound significance at an almost subconscious level. That's why people were worried when African-Americans dressed in refined clothing, because it suggested against the dominant ideology of the time of white supremacy, that African-Americans were refined and sophisticated. That's what that clothing suggests. When women wore masculine clothing, it suggested that those women could assert masculine privileges and masculine liberties because that's what that clothing suggested. It suggested that the women were ref um, not only refined, but also sober, practical, industrious, all of the things that women were denied in that context. And that made it a threat to the existing social order. And this is still true today. And so it's still a reason that clothing is the subject of rules, the subject of bound social expectations and norms that are consistently enforced in formal ways, but also in subtle, but no less powerful ways. So a few themes, we're always thinking about freedoms and obviously when you're thinking about dress codes, it applies to some things that we've experienced now. One person's freedom is another person's confinement or containment. We've seen that with masks, say, 
people really resisting it. And, and you've written about that. Or when I think of fashion as self-expression, others critique that when you discuss fast fashion as an extension of modern day slavery in terms of where the clothing is produced. Yes. Now, fast fashion is, you know, a whole other topic. And it is, you know, interesting that on the one hand, fast fashion is democratized fashion in ways that are positive. Um, it's made it easier for people of different income levels to, um, you know, participate in what you might describe as the fashion system. But at the same time, it's led to a great deal of waste, to environmental degradation, and as you point out, to you know, appalling labor conditions, because these garments are often made in order to keep the price down by um, people who are paid very little, sometimes children, sometimes people who are working in essentially slave conditions without their consent. And, you know, in order to produce clothing that was socially responsible in all of those domains, environmentally responsible and responsible in terms of the conditions and the compensation of the people producing it, um, clothing would have to be a lot more expensive. You know, one designer found that to make a white shirt, a very nice white shirt, but a white shirt with fair labor practices, a living wage, environmentally conscious, the shirt is about $400. Uh, so we're now moving into a domain in which clothing would be much more rare, as it has been historically for most of human history, much more expensive, a significant investment that's necessary in order to make it in a socially conscious way. And then there would be a much larger market for used clothing because that clothing would become a valuable commodity that one would need to preserve rather than something that, you know, well, when it's out of fashion, we just throw it in the bin. Yeah. And you'd also written on masks. It surprised us, you know, I'm in Paris. There was much less resistance over here. But I was wondering culturally why it was so in America. It was such a strange thing. Now, of course, some of this has to do with our current political dysfunction in the United States and the way that almost every issue could be grabbed onto by, you know, provocateurs to become a symbol of the culture wars. And so one of the things that happened in the United States was that the Trump administration wanted to downplay and deny the significance of the COVID-19 pandemic and wearing masks is the visible symbol of the pandemic. If you go out it, everyone's wearing a mask. You're reminded all the time we're in the middle of the pandemic. It's a crisis. It's something everyone needs to be concerned about. It's on everyone's face. And so for the Trump supporters who wanted to deny that, refusing to wear a mask was the perfect symbol of it. We don't need to wear this mask. There is no pandemic. There's no problem. Things are great. That becomes part of it. Now, I think in addition, you know, of course, wearing a mask is something of an inconvenience. And so for particular type of person who feels their individual convenience is paramount. Wearing the mask was offensive. It offends my individual liberties to have to wear this mask. And I do think in addition to that, the face is, of course, the most expressive part of the body. And so there is some cost to wearing masks in terms of one's ability to express oneself. You know, you can't smile at a stranger as you're walking down the street. They can't see um, your face. And so that cost was, of course, trivial as compared to the threat of the pandemic. And nevertheless, there's a cost. And so if someone could convince themselves that the pandemic threat wasn't real or had been exaggerated, then that cost would seem to be not worth it. The past few years, especially within light of the Black Lives Matter movement, there has been a stress on campus culture across the United States. Our eyes have been opened to how like school policies and ideas can be pretty vague towards, you know, opening and accepting other students and ideas, especially with dress codes. I was wondering if you've noticed anything like that at Stanford or any of the universities you've been to. Well, certainly campus politics has become more tense over the past several years. And the Black Lives Matter has created, I, I guess, a new awareness of the challenges of campus policing, among other things, in the way that various groups might be stereotyped according to the race and according to the way they dress. And with respect to the latter, certainly there is a history of judging people according to their clothing and adopting kind of stereotypes with 
respect to that sagging pants is, you know, the, one of the obvious examples where there've been, um, you know, lots of conversation in the 1990s about black men wearing sagging pants and ordinances passed against sagging pants or people saying, if you're wearing this, these sagging pants and kind of gangster stuff, then of course the police are going to think you're a gangster. So I think that these ideas are prevalent enough in society that they're going to affect policing uh, for sure. Uh, so those tensions are very real. They do, of course, also have not only racial, but also class connotations because the kinds of styles that tend to be stigmatized are, are usually associated with people of lower socioeconomic status. So as you do, elite universities, private universities have become more diverse in terms of socioeconomic status. They're bringing in people from different walks of life. That's again, another challenge. And I do think, you know, you see, particularly in urban campuses, you know, do you belong here? You know, do you go to this school um, or have you wandered in from off the streets that that kind of stereotype is going to have racial and class implications? And as you think of uh, the teachers who have influenced you, who have inspired you on your path, what were some of the important lessons that they passed on to you? Quite a few. I learned a great deal about thinking through I guess treating with a respectful but skeptical eye some of the stories that are told to us about American law and its potential to achieve justice. I learned that from some of my professors in law school. Um, some were associated with the critical legal studies movement, uh, people like Duncan Kennedy, uh, Jerry Frug at Harvard, Derek Bell, who taught me that some of the heroic stories about the law ought to be treated with a bit of skepticism. And I think that's influenced my career for a long time because I went into law school thinking, you know, I can change the world as a civil rights lawyer. And I left law school thinking, you know, civil rights litigation is an important but much more limited tool than I had hoped and believed going into law school. I think that lesson's been very valuable. As a consequence of that, I became much more interested in the role of informal mechanisms for social power. And that's another thing that I learned from some of my best professors, the way that culture, the way that habits, the way that etiquette, the way that patterns and practices of behavior are important sources of social power, not just formal rules that are enforced by legal sanctions, but all of these other more informal mechanisms of social power. So dress codes are an example of that, something that might be overlooked, but when one starts to look at it, be, it's revealed to be a very important source of social power. Other thing I learned was the importance of clear writing and, uh, you know, particularly if one wants to reach an audience outside of the academy. And so that's something that I've taken on as an important part of my work now. And that requires one to think about one's audience and how to write in a way that's compelling, in a way that's clear. And I think that that clear writing is not just a way to market your work to a broader audience, although it's certainly that, but it's also a way to keep one more honest because way too often academic jargon is a way to avoid saying something clearly. It's a way to either, um, obscure, unclear thinking, or a way to avoid making statements that one doesn't want to own up to. And the more clear one's writing is the less one can do that. And I think that's all to the better for intellectual honesty, as well as for reaching as many people as one can. And with that clear writing, do you work with any beyond housing authorities or do you work with any activist organizations or know of activist groups who have appreciated that clear communications and then taken it a step further to their local communities? Yeah. So I worked with governments, not only in San Francisco, but San Mateo County. And that involved a lot of public outreach about various public policy issues. And I'm continuing that kind of work. Right now, I'm actually working with a group in Canada called the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation, and I am one of the mentors of a group of graduate students. And one of the things we're doing is, you know, helping to train them to bring their work to broader audiences, you know, to come from the academy and 
be able to present that work to either in you know newspapers, magazines, opinion pages, public policy, activist circles. And then the other way it has involved various kinds of advocacy projects, whether it amicus brief writing or helping with legal opinions or policy advocacy. Exactly. You're seeing the work done. So much can be an abstraction. That's the criticism, I guess, in university okay. in the ivory tower. Yeah, uh, yes. As you think about the future and education and the kind of world that we're leaving for the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I would like young people to keep two things in mind that it might sound a little bit contradictory. One is that there's a great tradition of knowledge and intellectual endeavor and philosophy that the university has to offer, that our culture has to offer, that is important to master and that can guide one in the future. But at the same time, the older generation doesn't know everything. And often the older generation will belittle younger people. The contemporary example is that they're snowflakes. Uh, that they're engaged in cancel culture, this kind of thing. And sometimes us older people are right in those criticisms and sometimes we're not. And so trying to navigate that, to say, yes, I have something to learn from you, but also, you know, each generation needs to sort these things out for themselves. And sometimes the younger generation has got it right and we've got it wrong. Figuring out which is which is the challenge. I think in today's environment, particularly when we're confronting so many profound challenges, challenges to liberal democracy that, you know, frankly, when I was in college and law school, it was unthinkable that we'd be facing these kinds of authoritarian challenges around the world. Climate change, which we did see coming and didn't do anywhere near enough about, now reached a crisis state. And then just general um, political polarization and discord in so many Western societies that these challenges need new ideas and in many instances, radical ideas and ideas that are going to scare the older generation, but they're necessary because the alternative business as usual, um, we can see where that's headed and it's not headed anywhere good. So the radical idea or the idea that may have seemed too extreme now may be just the right thing. Exactly. And time is of the essence. Well, thank you, Richard Thompson Ford, for your invaluable contribution and all you've done to help us understand civil rights, anti-discrimination law, inequity, institutional reform, dress codes, and how fashion shapes culture and history. Thank you for all you do to advance social justice and sharing your insights into how America is now and how America might be. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thanks so much for having me. This has been a wonderful conversation. Really enjoyed it. Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Lucy Gordon with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews produced on this podcast was Lucy Gordon. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbarth. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.